Thank you, musicians. Um, wow. Nothing I really say is going to add anything to that. Um, but my hope is that we'll all leave changed having seen the beauty of the message of Jesus. Not what he taught us to do, but what he declared that he was doing and had accomplished for our sake. So I begin this morning with a question. If you were to die and stand before God this very evening, and he were to ask you a question, he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer? What would you say? Where would you point? To what would you look? Because every religion on earth has an answer to that question. Every, every religion on earth has something that you can do to bend the ear of God towards you, to get in line with the way the world was meant to be, to, to become one, whatever it's, however it's defined, whatever it looks like. Every religion has its four noble truths or its eightfold path or its five pillars or its ten commandments or its law of karma that and, and along with that, various rituals or behaviors or practices or lifestyles that will bring about the blessing of heaven upon you. And this means that religion's answer is almost always an answer of self-righteousness. You need to work harder. If you want God's blessing, then turn over a new leaf. Clean up your act. Do better. Perform better. Run faster. Be more disciplined. Work harder and create a righteous life that you can then present to God and say, See, God, you should let me into your heaven because look at this righteous life that I have lived for you. Here it is, God. Bless me. And yet it never was a life lived for God. It was a life lived for yourself so that you could get the blessing that you want to have. And that's why religious people always focused on ourselves, why we can be so incredibly insufferable, critical, and caustic, and judgmental, and cheap. I remember my roommate in seminary, a guy named David. He's a pastor now down in Nashville, but he had actually come from Nashville. He called it Nash Vegas. Uh, but it's his hometown, it's not mine, so I can't criticize it. But uh, he, uh, he had served as a waiter for years at sort of your typical sort of burger and fern chain restaurant. I think it was probably an O'Charlie's or something like that. And, and he said that as he was working there, there was always one shift that nobody wanted to work. There was one shift during the week that every single waiter, waitress, hostess, busboy, nobody wanted to work that one shift. It was the worst shift of the entire week. And, and you know, I mean, you know what it was, you know, back then, back in the day, you know, when you went to a restaurant and the host was there at the little check-in thing and they'd get out some menus, they'd count your number and then they'd ask you a question. You remember what they used to ask? They don't ask it anymore. They ask, smoking or non Right, they didn't, even, they, they didn't even bother to say non-smoking, it was just non. Uh, I mean, I remember smoking on airplanes, but that's a whole other story for a different Easter. Um, and that was when TWA was flying out of St. Louis. But, uh, you know, there was one shift that nobody wanted to work. Everybody loved to work in the smoking section. 
they love to work the bar because drinkers and smokers, they, they spend a lot of money and they, they leave a lot of money. They know how to be generous because they, they know they're going to leave ashes everywhere. But he said the one thing, nobody wanted to work the Sunday lunch shift in the non-smoking section. <laughs> you know why that is. No tips. Critical, difficult, complaining, religious people who made a mess and their food was never just right and they had a million demands and they were on their performance treadmill and they were putting you on a performance treadmill and they made sure that you didn't live up to it. And worse than that, they were cheap. It's what religion does. When you're on a self-righteous, performance-driven lifestyle trying to bring about the blessings of heaven into your life, what it turns you into is an angry, critical, ugly ogre who's cheap. And everybody knows it. It's what it does to us. And yet, it's what you see in churches in North America everywhere you look. It's a little different until you look beyond the churches. You look beyond all of this cultural Christianity that still surfaces even in America, even in the 21st century. You look beyond all that to this man, Jesus of Nazareth, to the first things of the Christian faith, to the early followers of Jesus. There are records about this incredible man. There are records about not what he told us to do, but what he said he was doing for us. You know, you look at Christianity, it's the only religion that has at its center a Roman instrument of torture and execution. You know, crosses weren't pretty things you wore. They were things that Romans would take. They would strip you naked. They would beat you. They would mock you. They would humiliate you, and then they'd nail you to it. But the nails would only cause some blood loss. You'd die slowly of asphyxiation, pulling yourself up for a breath and then collapsing in exhaustion and pulling yourself up again to get another breath and collapsing. It was torture. It was an instrument of shame and degradation. It was, it was like going into some new religion religious organization and going into their temple or assembly hall and seeing an electric chair all wired up up front and everybody bowing down to the electric chair and 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 ladies walking around with little electric chairs on their ears and around their necks and everybody having these books with electric chairs on the front that's what this is that's what christianity was that's what jesus was coming to tell us about about the cross we have these two holidays this weekend two and one Good Friday and Easter. And on it, Christians gather to celebrate a shameful, tortuous execution and death. And then two days later, the reversal of that death in what we call the resurrection. What does it mean? Why does it matter? How is it different from human religion? And how can it help you answer that question that you too will have to answer sooner or later? None of us lives forever. Is there life beyond? And if so, how can you have a part in the blessedness that is God the creator, the center of beauty and goodness? We're going to look at a letter, an epistle. It was It's titled the Epistle to the Romans. It means Paul's email to people in Rome, the Christians there. Uh, We're reading the mail of somebody who died 2,000 years ago, and we're going to pick it up in Romans chapter 4. In your pew Bible, if you want to follow, it's page 1752, 1752. 
It's Romans 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 22 and go through verse 11 of chapter 5. Paul has been talking about something that happened 1,400 years earlier. Uh, you know, millennia ago, a man named Abraham, the father of the faithful, the first Jew called by God. And in Genesis, it says that Abraham believed God's promise to bless and that his faith was reckoned as righteousness. And Paul has been telling that story, and in verse 22, he explains this is why. He says, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness in Genesis. He says, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. He continues, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, But we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we have now been justified, that is declared righteous, by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Two questions this morning. Why a crucified Savior? And why a resurrection? Why a crucified Savior? Why a crucified God? Why did Jesus, the Son of God, have to do that? And Jesus presents a very different answer from the answer of human religion with its call to work harder, do better, be more disciplined, and make more effort. Jesus presents us one as one who has chosen to take our sins our shame upon himself. He who was righteous faced the penalty in that electric chair or on that cross. Uh, He takes our blame. He pays the penalty. It's what you see repeatedly throughout chapter 4. You know, in in, in verse 25, he was delivered over to death for our sins. Uh, In 5 verse 1, we have peace with God through him because he died for us again and again, pointing to the death of Jesus as a substitution, something that he did in our place. Uh, You know, some of you have been in arguments before 
I'm sure. And you know how this works in an argument. Maybe you're arguing with your, your boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, ex-wife, kid, parent, employer, employee. And the argument basically goes like this. One of you says, no, you're wrong. And the other says, no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, I'm right. You are wrong. Here's where you're wrong. Let me detail the list of how you've been wrong. No, I'm right in all of those. Let me detail the list of how you're wrong, how you're twisting things. Oh, now don't get all emotional. You know you're wrong. I'm not getting emotional, you abusive jerk. You're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. And it keeps going like that forever. Some of you have marriages where you've been in that argument for 40 or 50 years. It just never stops. I I mean, I'm not pointing at any, any anybody. Uh, But, uh, you know, and and the only way the argument stops is when somebody says, okay, I'm wrong. When somebody steps up, whether they were right or wrong, and takes responsibility and takes the blame. And in humanity's war with God, this conflict in which he's been telling us we're wrong all of these millennia, and we've been pointing at all the suffering and evil in the world and telling him he's wrong for all these millennia in this endless argument that's been going on for thousands of years. Who is it who took responsibility? The cross is where Jesus stepped up and says, okay, I'll be the one who is wrong. I'll take all of the sin." I will take all of the blame. And it's when Jesus, the Son of God himself, steps up, him who actually is righteous, we who really were wrong, when he steps up and says, I will take responsibility, I will end the argument, I will end the warfare between humanity and God because I will take all of the guilt, all of the blame into myself and pay the due penalty for all of it. Bearing our shame on the cross. That's what enables us to then stop and say, no, wait, Jesus, Son of God, to see him suffering the wrath of God on the cross, to see him in torture, knowing that he was the only loving man in the history of humanity, to see him there and say, no, you're right, Lord. I'm wrong. We're wrong. Humanity is so much less than we were meant to be. You're right, Lord. We were wrong. How do you screw up your life and totally end up with the favor and blessing of God? It's when Jesus bears your shame. What is the cross saying? The cross is saying that the responsibility for our rebellion against God, for our divorce from God, from our estranged relationship, all the responsibility for my depravity and my indifference and my selfishness and my control issues and my looking for for people to, to, to be pleased with me and all the manipulation, the deceit and everything that's wrong for me, all of that responsibility is placed where? On Jesus. That's the message of the cross. A couple days ago, we had a holiday. We call it Good Friday. Why do we call it good? It's a day in which the Son of God suffered an agonizing death, not only at the hands of Roman torturers and executioners, but at the hand of his father when his father turned his back upon him and gave Jesus the punishment that we ourselves deserved. When Jesus took that willingly, why do we call it a Good Friday? But because he was on that cross 
instead of me and instead of you. And he absorbed the wrath of God instead of me, instead of you. And he was rejected by his father saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was he really forsaken? Did God the Father truly turn his back on the Son of God and reject him and say, you are not my son and I will not be in fellowship with you and you do not have my blessing? Absolutely. And because Jesus took that for us, you, if you believe Jesus, you will never face that yourself, but instead will receive the blessing of God because there is no double jeopardy with the kingdom of God. Once it is paid for, it is paid in full, and Jesus on the cross said, Behold, it is finished. That's the joy and the liberation of Christianity. It was a good Friday. It was a very good Friday that we have a Savior, a rescuer who has come to do what we could not do. Instead of having to earn a righteousness of our own, we have one who bore our sin and bore our shame says in verse 10 of chapter 5, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Reconciliation, rightness with God, that God is now pleased with you and welcomes you. It says in verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we all know on some level that we need this. We all know we need forgiveness. We all have skeletons in our closet. I've got closets full of skeletons. I'm the biggest sinner in the room, and I'm the person you put up here. What are you thinking? Yet, yet it's the power of the gospel to allow us to be honest with our sin, honest about what's broken. It's what creates that gospel culture that Tao was talking about, where, where you can go up to a stranger and be open about your failings and what you're ashamed of and what's bad because you don't need to be ashamed because you have the pleasure of God and your sin is atoned for, your guilt is taken away, and you are now free. You are now alive because you have the Son of God. He's got your back. We all know uh, that we need this. In his short story, The Capital of the World, Ernest Hemingway tells the story of a father seeking out his son. Uh, estrangement has been a reality, and so this father, he goes to Madrid, and, and he takes out a newspaper ad. And in the newspaper, the advertisement says, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. And then as noon Tuesday approaches, the father makes his way through the streets of Madrid and he finds the Hotel Montana. And as he gets there, there are police. They've cordoned off. They've got guards everywhere trying to control the incredible crowd because there are 800 people there and they're all named Paco and they all are looking for forgiveness. If you believe Jesus... If you hear what he is saying and you say, yes, Jesus, I need this. I need you to cover my sins. I need to be free. I need to know that you have got this taken care of, that you did it for me. If that's where you are, then hear the word of your father in heaven who says, meet me here. Meet me now. All is forgiven. Papa. 
See, this is a God who saves the world by giving up power, a God who dies for his enemies, a God who loves those with whom he's estranged. Jesus, who had all the riches of heaven, and he gave all of it up to have the one thing that he wanted most, which is you. I've shared once before the story of Ernest Gordon. Ernest Gordon was a Scotsman. During the Second World War, he was in the 2nd Battalion, the Sutherland Highlanders. And he had fought in the Malayan Campaign and then again in the Battle of Singapore. He was one of the last uh, foreign uh, 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 military personnel to escape Singapore. And, uh, And as he escaped by boat, they were taken by the Japanese. And he was forced into a camp uh, for prisoners of war, an internment camp tasked with constructing the Siam to Burma Railroad. He helped build the bridge over the River Kwai, and there were over 80,000 prisoners who died building that railroad. Some of them died from disease. Some of those 80,000 died from malnutrition, and others died from cruelty. And yet, Ernest Gordon says that the worst cruelty was that afflicted among fellow prisoners. It was a brutal culture. If you could steal someone else's food, you stole it. If you could steal their clothes or their boots or their blanket, you did that. You did whatever it took to survive because everyone was in it for themselves. If you had to kill another man to save your own life, that's what you did. It was dog eat dog, every man for himself. Until one day, something changed. Something happened that ended up transforming the entire culture among those POWs in that Japanese internment camp and started to transform them inside out to make them more loving and more considerate. They began taking care of each other's wounds. What was it that happened that changed everything? It was the day that they brought in a labor detail and the Japanese guards counted up all of the shovels and they found that one shovel was missing. So the Japanese guards lined up all of the men and they demanded that the culprit confess who is it who took the the shovel, who was going to bear the penalty for having done this. And when no one stepped forward, a guard raised his gun to the very first prisoner in line and was preparing to shoot him. And then a young enlisted man stepped out of line and he said, I took the shovel. And the guard took the butt of his gun and he cracked open the young man's skull and they beat him to death on that very spot. It was later that day that they recounted the shovels and they discovered that there had never been a shovel missing. And instantly they all realized what had happened. A young recruit had stepped out of line and took it for everybody else. Friends, that's the message of the cross. That is what Jesus did for you. He stepped out of line and he took it for you. And he gives us more than mere forgiveness here. Uh, What we have here is an expression that we are saved through his life. Uh, You know, that we have been justified by the blood of Christ in verse 9. We've been reconciled to God in verse 10. In verse 1, we have been justified. To be justified means to be validated. In a Roman court of law, to be justified 
was to be declared not only innocent, but to be declared righteous, that you are an outstanding citizen. There is no dishonor, but you have all the honor of a citizen of Rome itself upon you. You are absolutely vindicated and validated fully and finally and forever as a fixed fact of history that you no longer have to prove yourself through what you do, through your relationships, through how you dress, through the image you project. You don't have to prove yourself through your career or through your business or through how well you do at parenting or how well your marriage is. You don't have to prove yourself anymore because in 4 verse 24 he says, God credits righteousness to anybody who believes in the God of Jesus. Jesus is already measured up for you. If you have Jesus, you have his righteousness. That means you have the resume of Christ. You know, the Father looks at you. If you're a Christian, if you trust Jesus, it means he's looking at your resume. You're standing there in his presence. Why should I let you in? And he pulls out your resume and he says right here, well, look, oh my gosh, you always did what pleased me. I love the way that you resurrected Lazarus from the dead. And when you fed those 5,000 people and came to the defense of that adulteress with a bunch of self-righteous people who wanted to stone her, that really impressed me. You measure up. It means your resume is Christ's resume, and he's put your name at the very top. It's what Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer in the 16th century, called the Great Exchange, where all of my sin goes to Jesus, and all of Jesus' righteousness comes to me. And so on the cross, Jesus bears my sin, and then when I believe in him, I bear his righteousness, his validity, his honor. The shame is gone. You know, it's like, it's like if you go into, uh, uh, you know, Bank of America and you walk in and you've got an account there. You've got several accounts there. They know you. Uh, you know, you've bounced like 10 checks and you've defaulted on three different loans and you have paid back absolutely zero plus. You've got all of these late fees and, and you go in and the person sits you down and they say, okay, we're going to just cancel all these late fees and we're going to cover these bounced checks and we're just going to erase all of these debts that you have. Now, is that grace? Yeah, <laughs> they're not going to do that, but that is absolutely grace. That's what we call forgiveness. But as you leave and you walk out the doors of that Bank of America branch, let's make it the good branch in Manhattan, I can assure you that you are absolutely bankrupt at that moment. And they never, ever want to see you again. But imagine, if you will, that as you're walking out the door, the CEO of Bank of America comes out with your file and he's rushing after you saying, oh, Mr. Mr. Miss, Miss, please, please come back in. There's been a terrible mistake. We should not have done that to you. I am, I am so sorry. We've got to correct this. And you go in, you're like, oh, gosh. You know, you just go in. And he takes you actually up the elevator into the, like, executive suite. And you go through and he's taking you into this, you know, palatial, like, million-dollar, like, I mean, they're, like, animal heads on the walls and, like, all kinds of mahogany and Brazil wood and zebra-striped wood and all sorts of lots of wood and leather and everything. And he sits you down. He says, no, 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 you're on this side of the desk. And he sets you down in his chair back in the corner with all the glass behind it. And he sits down on the floor next to you and he says, you know, I am so sorry. Um, I'm just going to make this right. Uh, I'm just going to take the entire bank's ledger and transfer it to your account. And I'm just going to take the bank's account and put your name on it. In fact, um, the shareholders have authorized it. You now own Bank of America. That's righteousness. And what St. Paul is telling us here is that Christ's death isn't just forgiveness, 
but it clothes the Christian in the righteousness of Christ so that in the eyes of God, you are altogether worthy. Marcus Sloan says this. He says, forgiveness says you may go now, but righteousness says you may come. The righteousness of Jesus, not my own. I have none, but clothed with that which he performed for, that which he gives. That's what the cross is. So what's then the resurrection? The resurrection is proof looking back that the debt has been paid for, that the Father has has seen the sacrifice of his Son and he has accepted that as payment for our sins so that Jesus has indeed rescued us and it's all true. And yet, there's something more because the resurrection is also looking forward. Yes, he was raised to life for our justification, but we now have hope for we shall be saved through his resurrected life. It points us to what's coming next beyond the grave. You know, what's the trajectory of of your life? Um, You start out really incredibly little, floating in a sack of fluid. And then you eventually make your way out of the womb, sometimes willingly, sometimes less so. Sometimes you get the easy route out. Sometimes you got to make work at it. But, you know, you get out and then you wear some diapers and then you gain some skills you learn maybe a couple words, some language. You learn to crawl, and then you learn to, to kind of, you know, cruise, and then you learn to walk, and then you have your first day of school, and then you progress eventually, maybe even through college, maybe through grad school, maybe through Ph.D., maybe through some postdoc work, or maybe instead you get married and have children, or maybe you do both, and maybe then you actually keep the marriage and the children. And maybe I don't know. It can be a lot of different ways, but you progress through raising children and grandchildren, and somewhere, I don't know where, At some point, it happens. At some point, you crest the hill. And then it all starts going downhill. Then things start happening. You know, then you get, you know, diverticulitis. And then you get, you know, diabetes. Then you get all sorts of other congenital problems. And your hair starts getting thin. And it starts changing into more of a platinum blonde that you never had as a child. Uh, We'll call it that anyway. And... And then everything starts hurting and you can't get up out of your pew after a worship service without vocalizing it. And your butt hurts while you're sitting there because there's no cushion. And you, you, everything starts to get out of shape and everything starts to go down a hill. And the next thing you know, you're wearing diapers again. And then you're dead in a box being put in the ground or you're getting incinerated and your ashes are sitting on somebody's mantle. But that's only if you had kids. If you didn't have kids, nobody wants you on their mantle. I've thought this through. I'm going for the box. (laughs) But if Jesus was dead, and then he came back to life, and if he said he's the first fruits, that he's that first little burst of flowers on the trees, this first little tiny light, light lime green leaves that you can barely see, if he says my resurrection is that and the harvest is going to come, summer is on its way, everything is going to come back to life. If you believe in me, Jesus is saying, you are going to rise as well as surely as I rose as a matter of history, so too you will rise. And it is a matter of of history. As a historian, I can tell you that the resurrection of Jesus is as well attested as any fact of ancient history. And if those early Christians were going to make up an account of the Son of God dying and then coming back to life, I can tell you they certainly wouldn't have made all of the first witnesses women 
because women were not even legally able to testify in a court of law under Jewish law or Roman law. They crippled themselves for 1,800 years because of the, the sexism of the culture. They would have made up something better. If Jesus rose as a matter of fact, then hear him when he says, you two are going to rise. Think of it a billion years from now when all the stars will have gone out and there will no longer be anyone to even know that the human race had existed, will it all have been meaningless? It just becomes absurd at that point. At that point, there's no good or bad, nothing that ultimately matters because there's nothing that ultimately exists beyond the here and now. But if Jesus rose from the dead, if this happened, then it changes everything. That means that right now, we are still in the prelude. We have not even gotten to the introduction. We haven't even cracked the first chapter. We're still in Roman numeral pages. You haven't even gotten to Arabic number one. Because it means that, that everything else is yet to come. The best is before us. What lies before us is a resurrection. The reversal of everything that is evil and wrong and unjust and broken in the world something in my own devotional pattern every night when I go to bed I get on my knees by my bed and I pray uh, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father interjecting it with other prayer requests as they come to mind and then I get into my bed and as I get into my bed I imagine myself crawling into my coffin and as I close my eyes and I begin to give up consciousness I picture myself releasing my consciousness to Christ, practicing my death one more time and looking forward to the morning knowing that if Christ has been faithful, if he is true, if he is who he says he was, then I'm going to wake up one more time and I have the resurrection. I wake up in the morning and I give thanks to God. I say, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And I give thanks for the resurrection of the Son of God because it is the very beginning of what's going to come. And I have practiced night after night, not thinking about death through the day, but thinking about it at night in that ancient, really Puritan, English Puritan devotional practice of practicing every night for the resurrection knowing that a day will come when we will have to give up consciousness one last time and trust that Jesus is the Son of God and that we will regain consciousness on the other side. You know what the believer will say if you are a Christian when you cross over on the other side, when you leave the land of the dying to go into the land of the truly living. Oh my God. Because the Bible says that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered the mind of man what God has prepared there for those who love him. Remember a couple whose daughter is severely disabled, um, goes around in a motorized wheelchair. It's been a lifetime of so many surgeries and so many procedures, and so many hospitals, and so many follow-up visits. Um, Their daughter is unable to speak. They have to turn her over every couple hours, her entire life of being turned over every few hours so she doesn't get bed sores. It's feeding tubes, and you can see on the parent's face, you can see their exhaustion. 
And yet what Jesus is saying in rising from the dead is that there is something incredibly beautiful that is on its way. There is something amazing that is coming because a day will come when that little girl will grab her father by the hand and drag her out onto the dance floor and that little girl isn't just going to talk. That little girl is going to dance. It's the reversal of everything that is evil and wrong, all the suffering of humanity made right when God himself makes everything new at the resurrection. It's what it means. This is the real Jesus, a lover of sinners, a resurrection hope. Heard a story of this couple. Um, They're Christians. They moved to Israel. And, uh, you know, they moved to Israel and they met a lot of really secular people. Uh, you know, what one couple stood out above all others. The woman was very chic. They were both very sophisticated, very modern. They had traveled the world. They, they had an open marriage, no need to report to one another. The man took, of course, full advantage of this, apparently. Uh, what he didn't realize is that the wife didn't. She had just one other man, one lover that she loved very, very deeply, loved far more than her own husband. And so... This woman, you know, from the U.S., her name's Becky. Uh, she gets to know this, this very sophisticated Israeli woman. And as a Christian, she wants to be able to talk about her faith. But this woman, she's very secular. She's very seductive. She's very sensual. And so she doesn't ever really bring it up. And then one day, this, this Israeli woman comes to Becky and says, Becky, will you tell me about Jesus? Becky's mouth just dropped open. Uh, this Israeli woman says, I, I want to read the gospel according to Mark. And Becky paused. Okay, so what, uh, what changed in you that uh, you'd be interested in that sort of thing? And the woman answered, well, my lover, you know, the man I'm having an affair with, I, my lover told me the other day that the rabbis never taught us about Jesus of Nazareth. And he said he's always wanted to learn about Jesus. And so he's starting to read the book of Mark. And, and Becky, I really want this man to love me. And so would you teach me about Jesus? Uh, how many Christians get this invitation? You know, will you help me? Because I want this affair to really work out. And, and uh, so will you tell me about Jesus so, so that, uh, you know, I, I can be more attractive to my illicit lover? Uh, you know, it's a strange invitation for a Christian to receive in Israel. Uh, in fact, uh, this woman said, you know, could we read the Bible together? And so they actually started reading the Bible. I'm picturing them out on this, like, sun-drenched terrace over the Mediterranean with cocktail shakers in the background and, and Mies van der Rohe Barcelona chairs out in the lounge. And, you know, just... So they're starting to read the Bible together. And this woman, she gets really, really nervous. And so she's like, you know, Becky, I, I'm really nervous about this. Do you think Jesus would mind if I, if I smoke while we study his Bible? And so she, she totally lights up, not even like a long slit. She lights up a cigar. And so they're sitting there studying the Bible, reading a cigar, and then she gets kind of worked up, and she's not sure about what she's reading. She says, you know, I, I really need a drink. Do you think Jesus would mind if, if I have some wine while we study him? No, fine, go ahead. So she then just starts pouring the wine, and they start doing this every day, day by day by day. And then one day, after many weeks, they've read the story of Jesus with the prostitute at the Pharisee's house where the religious leaders are shaming this woman and Jesus comes to her defense. And this very sophisticated Israeli woman puts down her glass of wine and she puts down her cigar and her face is totally changed. And she says, 
you know, all my life, I thought I was a worthless piece of dirt. And all my life, I've been sure that if there is a God, that he would concur. And I can't get over how different this message of Jesus really is. All my life, I've known that I'm lost. Nobody needs to tell me that I'm lost. I'm groping in the dark. And I thought, if there is a God, he must despise my lostness. But now I'm seeing Jesus. And he seems to really love you if you're lost. It's so different than I ever thought it would be. When you stand before God, and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? If you stand before him and you start citing your religious performance and your successes, friends, you're not going to make it. But if you point to Jesus and say, I may be the worst sinner on the planet, but I have the best Savior ever. He has borne my shame. He has borne my sin. And I bear it no more. He has clothed me in his righteousness. And he has given me the certain promise that I too will rise and I will rise to life. Then, friends, you can have certainty. I remember Tal, when we interviewed him for membership before we baptized him. I remember, you know, he he was talking. He's a very good talker. It's obvious. So I figured I'd need to throw him off a little bit. So I just asked him, Tal, if you were to stand before God tonight and you were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And without missing a beat, he said, well, God, you promised. Friends, that's faith. That's Jesus. That's the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have died, you have risen, and you have promised that if we believe you, then we too, when we die, will rise to eternal life. And so, Lord Jesus, hear me now when I say, Jesus, I need you. I receive you. You are all I have. You are my hope. You are my life. Thank you. We consecrate to you the elements for this table, for this sacrament, that you administer your good news to us, not of what we have to do to earn your favor, but what Jesus has already done, which is free for the taking for all who will. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.